Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Grace Marie Turner, the president of the Galen Institute, where she has been working on health care legislation and policy for nearly 25 years in Washington, D.C., and has lived to tell about it. But first, Andrew is going to help us set up um, this topic. Yeah, healthcare policy we we like to address on this show as as it is germane. You read about things in the news, and the the thing that you'll realize is there's a few major talking points. Um, a lot of these are are politically oriented, uh, depending on what side of the aisle people are coming from. But we try and look at it from a Catholic perspective, especially with a mind for human dignity. Um, so one of the ways we wanted to discuss some of these talking points is to look at what President Trump. Uh, executively ordered on June 24th, 2019. It was his second, I believe, executive order on health care. And it goes through several things that really will we'll set up some of our discussion with Grace Marie. The, the first thing is transparency. Um, Tom and I recently had an opportunity to talk with uh, Mike Braun, who's a senator from Indiana. And who we interviewed on this show several months ago. And it may be back in the future even. Yes. <laughs> he uh, very, very nice guy. And we really appreciated what he was focusing on was cost transparency. If you are going to go buy a screwdriver and you're trying to figure out if you're going to Lowe's or Home Depot, you might look online and see the price differences. But I just use my home tools insurance and then they reimburse them, right? <laughs> Wait, no, there's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that is a good point. Well, but that's one thing that frustrates so many patients. And I see this on a daily basis in, in folks that I get to care for. You know, how much is that going to cost? And the question is, or I guess the answer is, I, I don't really know. It depends what hospital you go to. It depends on your plan. Not even your health insurance carrier, but even within a carrier, everybody's got different plans. And so it can be, uh, as, as the executive order refers to it, an opaque pricing structure. And so one of the main things that is the goal of this executive order is to increase transparency by getting hospitals in particular, but also drug companies to list the prices of services and drugs. Oh, I loved when we were talking to Senator Braun. Andrew and I both personally have a thing against the uh, direct-to-consumer advertising on TVs because our listeners may not know, but I learned it from my 17-year-old daughter. In the civilized planet that we live on, only two nations allow direct-to-consumer advertising for prescription drugs. They are New Zealand and the United States. And and for for folks following along at home, direct-to-consumer advertising is when you see advertisements for drugs. It it might be an interesting concept because we're so immune to it at this point, but there was a time in America when we did not have advertisements on television or in the newspaper. Do you have this problem? Do you have back pain? Are you ever depressed? Maybe you should try this drug. Um, That is something that is not legal in other parts of the world, most of the world, but it's something that's legal here, and it, it creates an interesting problem for doctors because people come in saying, I want to try this drug, but... We might be thinking, oh, there's a couple of reasons that drug's actually a bad choice for you. Um, maybe you don't need a drug. Maybe you need something else or a different drug. But oh, well, I love Senator Braun's response. He's like, well, yeah, maybe it would be good to be off, but if it's going to be on, they should state the price of the drug. And I said, oh, that would probably end the advertising right there because yeah. I don't want people to know. Well, and, and if somebody's advertising for a drug, it's because they're they're generally getting a pretty good profit off of it. Yes. And so a lot of the, the prices on there, I think people would get sticker shock if they're like, oh, do you, do you have back pain sometimes or high cholesterol? This drug costs $100,000. Are you interested? I don't think many people would go further than no. that. No, they wouldn't. And so that was part of the executive order that's already been challenged in court. Of and course. So well, as everything is, right? <laughs> we'll see how it works out in the court system. But I think transparency, giving people information to make good decisions is a, is a good thing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and the flip side of that, which I think maybe has more likelihood of initial and immediate success, is getting hospitals to list their prices for shoppable services, is, is what the executive order says. So things that many people in the same market or the same city uh, provide a similar service, like I need to have my gallbladder out 
kind of the regular way, no no extras, no, just the base model. Yeah. Uh, how much does that cost? <laughs> and if you live in a town or a city with multiple hospital systems and multiple surgeons, you should be able to shop around to some extent. Right. But, but the, the trouble is it gets even more complicated than that is that the hospitals may have a sticker price, but the negotiated price with the insurance companies is usually something quite different. Right. And it's different between insurance companies. Every, every one is different. And the health insurance companies and the hospitals say that's proprietary information. We've got a special deal on the side. That's not public knowledge. But to the rest of us who have gotten a medical bill from a hospital, you know, I can I can recall uh, having a baby at the hospital and they said, this is $25,000, but actually you're on the hook for five grand. I said, Gee whiz. I mean, obviously, it didn't really cost $25,000. No. You know, and I wonder what the guy in the room next to me is paying. Exactly. So getting the actual prices posted, I think, would be a huge service to consumers and patients. Oh, I completely agree. So that's that's number one is the transparency. Um, The number two thing that I thought was very interesting was the expansion of health savings accounts. Yes. But especially creating a carve-out for... um, health ministries. So there's several health sharing ministries out there, um, one of which would be the Solidarity folks, and um, there's Liberty Health Share and several in that that family. CMF Curo. CMF Curo, Christian Healthcare Ministries. I'm not sure if there's a a dozen or so of these guys, but they're a very nice service where the family pays in uh, a monthly gift amount to help support the healthcare costs of another person who needs them. So in, in you know, an analogy to health insurance, the premiums are a lot cheaper. And so it saves a lot on kind of routine fixed health care costs. These have never been allowed to be used uh, with, you were never allowed to use health savings account funds to pay for these, but the new executive order is going to try and make that happen, where if you purchase a catastrophic health plan off of, you know, the Obamacare website, and you you have a health savings component in there that's tax-free money, you can use those to pay the health-sharing ministries, which would really, I think, be a great opportunity for so many people because otherwise you're kind of paying for it twice. So that reduces the tax burden for a lot of middle-class Americans. Yeah, I think think that would be a great opportunity, especially for a a lot of these sharing ministries are faith-based, and so I think that's a very nice thing for for faith-based people. the, the next thing I'd, I'd like to kind of focus on is looking at the, basically the surprise medical bills. Goes back to the transparency, but anybody who has sought out healthcare services, you never really know what it's gonna be ahead of time. And frequently people are surprised if they happen to see someone who is out of network. We struggle with this on the physician side all the time when we have, you know, every plan is different, but there's one plan that that honestly I'm thinking about not accepting anymore because if they see one person in our office, it's a certain price. If they see somebody else, it's a different price. Same office, same service, same patient, same practice, everything. But each plan does that type of thing really, in my opinion, to jack up the revenue. So if we were running a grocery store, a gallon of milk would cost different based on who you are and what time of day you came in and how many you bought. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. And and this has been allowed to continue for so long, really, in in the opinion of it, at least, uh, you know, our conversation with, with Mike Braun, kind of one of the things I walked away from is there's a lot of powerful lobbies out there related to the insurance companies and related to the hospitals who yes. would really rather the status quo stay the same. But um, it's it's definitely affecting a lot of people. And so that's kind of some of the stuff we want to talk about with Grace Marie focusing on transparency and as as an opposition to what many people are, are talking about is Medicare for all. That's right. So, you know, we want to talk about, you know, what is Medicare for all? What is Medicare? Uh, what kind of changes would that mean in our system? Uh, I think this is one of the best services we can do for our listeners is to educate you about what this three-word slogan is, Medicare for All. And one of the things Grace Marie talks about is the high price of free care. Free care really costs a lot. We're going to talk about what that means and how that applies to this. It sounds great. Free medical care, there is no such thing. I'm, I'm still waiting for my first free lunch. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm wondering if health care is going to be different. I suspect not. I, I suspect not either. So in trying to rustle up a good 
trivia question for this. I went, <clears throat> unfailingly, to the World Health Organization's Global Health Expenditure Database. I, I, don't, I actually don't spend a lot of time here. I have better things to do with my <laughs> life. But I did discover something fascinating because I wanted to find out, okay, we talk about other countries having better um, healthcare systems, at least in terms of cost. So I wanted to see, as a percentage of how much money Americans earn, what percentage do we put toward healthcare compared to other countries? Percentage of an individual person's income. Percentage of income, you know, for that country. So we're not saying how many dollars. It's what percent of your income goes toward healthcare. So uh, there was this one chart, and I said, "Oh, this is great." So on this chart. There were um, the United States and Belgium, which do not have universal health care, but there were 10 other countries that do have what's known as universal health care, which is what those who want Medicare for all uh, want the the U.S. to have. So I want you to listen to this list of 10 countries, and then the trivia question is, how many of these countries have citizens who pay less percent of their income toward health care than Americans. Remember, we do not have universal health care in the United States. These 10 countries do. They are Australia, Austria, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. Of those 10 countries, how many of them have citizens who pay less percent of their income toward health care than Americans. You're going to have to hang around till the end of the show for the answer because we have lots of fascinating stuff before that comes from the studios of Redeemer Radio here on Dr. Doctor. And welcome back. We have our special guest with us today, Grace Marie Turner. She's the president of the Galen Institute, a public policy research organization that she founded way back in the last millennium, 1995. And she did it to promote an informed debate over market-based health reform, not government-based. She's been instrumental in developing and promoting various ideas for reform so that doctors and patients have more power in their healthcare decisions. She speaks and writes about incentives to promote a more competitive and patient-centered marketplace in the health sector. Grace Marie, welcome to Dr. Doctor. It is such a pleasure to be with you both. Thank you so much, Dr. Mullally and Dr. McGovern, and for all of your work in helping people understand what it's like to be a practicing physician in today's crazy world. Well, you're welcome. Wow, that's the (laughs) nicest comment we've ever gotten from a guest off the running. This should be great. So Grace Marie testifies frequently in different committees in the House and Senate. She testified on June 12th of this year to the House Ways and Means Committee. And I want to give our listeners a flavor for what what she's about. She said that millions of Americans are frustrated with the current health care system. I think listeners can agree. Because of the cost of care and premiums, deductibles that are so high they might as well be uninsured. She says people are hurting and they feel powerless against the system. I think even Andrew and I do as physicians. She says that the more government gets involved, the more the health sector has to respond to legislative and regulatory demands rather than the patients who want more choices of more affordable care and coverage. Also true in our offices. We have um, at least one or two people working in our office just to count the beans for the government that does nothing to make health care better. And then I love this you know, I, I forget where I read this uh, recently, but if you were in a room of 100 Americans and you asked them if they had a major medical problem, would they quickly Google and find the cheapest plane flight to a nearby country or a faraway country for care, or would they get it right here? Nobody would raise their hands to go to another country. So she is saying a lot of statements to which us physicians and many patients would say, amen, sister. So... Grace Marie, can you explain this disconnect between patient frustration with our system in the U.S., but yet the trust that they have in what they believe doctors can do for them in America? We have seen for decades that physicians are physicians and nurses are among the most trusted professions in this country, and people people love their doctors. And they love the care that they get and the quality of care in this country. But just as physicians are frustrated, patients are frustrated because they feel so powerless 
in as cogs in this three and a half trillion dollar healthcare system that's responsive to bureaucracies and not to them. And they also feel they don't have any control over the costs that they're required to pay. So it's frustrations with the externalities. And what they want is a solid central doctor-patient relationship. That's what they really want, and they don't have that, and that's why they're mad at the system. So, Grace Marie, how do we fix this? What What's the answer? I mean, uh, there's so many things going on. Before we had you on, we reviewed President Trump's executive order from June talking about transparency. Is there a piece of the puzzle that transparency would help? Absolutely, and we're actually going to be releasing a paper next Friday by Brian Blaze, who was President Trump's top health policy advisor for the last several years, and he's now a senior fellow at the Galen Institute. Transparency is an important part of this. The Trump administration has done a lot of things to try to devolve power away from Washington to doctors and patients through giving them people more options of non-Obamacare compliant insurance through short-term plans, association health plans, giving employers more options to give people the money that they would otherwise be spending on their health care, and instead give them the ability to find the plans that they want. So the Trump administration is trying to do what it can with its regulatory authority, but Congress really needs to act. And we have a plan we've been working on for a year and a half now called the Healthcare Choices Plan that is getting a great deal of support among people who believe in, in, in free markets and patient dignity and the doctor-patient relationship. And we've got a dedicated website. Maybe we can put this on, on your sure. website. What is that? It's health, healthcarechoices2020.org. Healthcarechoices, plural, 2020.org. And that plan is out there. It's getting a lot of support. We're talking with the White House about it. We're talking with Congress. They know they need a positive plan to go forward in the 2020 election, which is going to be a lot about health care. They know they just can't say, well, we don't like Medicare for all. They're, people say, well, what are you going to do to fix this? Our plan has been shown to reduce the cost of premiums, to cover at least as many people, and we believe many more, actually, when, it, when the cost of the premiums go down, and to, most importantly, give people many more choices of coverage that they can afford and that their families feel is in compliance with their own ethical, religious, and beliefs of, of um, conscience. Grace Marie, could you summarize some aspects of that plan for our listeners who haven't heard of it before? Well, the the key is to get money and power away from the Washington bureaucracy. Because if you if you centralize our healthcare system, as the Medicare for all proponents are talking about, you're going to put more and more and more power in the hands of bureaucrats in Washington who are never going to know your name and they're going to be making decisions. Well, Bernie Sanders says everything's going to be free. You can go see any doctor, any hospital you want, any time. Imagine if he said that about food. We're going to now have national <laughs> food insurance. You can go to any grocery store anytime you want and take whatever you need. The shelves are going to look like they do before a major snowstorm in Washington, D.C. They're all going to be bare, right? right? And so what we need to do is instead of promising everybody everything and then having a system that is not going to be able to deliver, and physicians, by the way, paid probably below Medicare, maybe even at Medicaid rates, so that many of them won't be able to keep their doors open. Instead of that, we want to devolve power away from Washington, give the states the resources and the ability to make sure people are covered, that need help with coverage, but m- provide many more opportunities for coverage, not just different kinds of insurance plans, but things like direct primary care, sharing ministries, really boosting the options available to people, and having doctors no longer have to fill out so much paperwork that they can't spend time with their patients. Allow doctors to go back and be doctors again instead of of agents of this bureaucracy. So this is really moving money and power away from Washington through the states, also made to individuals. But it will need a completely different um, face to Congress to get that passed, wouldn't it? 
We have a, a lot of support. There, there are several uh, key senators that we're working with on a weekly basis to to get this through. Um, it's not going to happen in the next 15 months. It's not going to happen while you have a Senate that is controlled by Republicans and a House that's controlled by Democrats with completely polar opposite views of health care. But it, it is important that this that there be a really vibrant conversation leading up to the 2020 election so people see they have a real choice. They have a choice between a centrally controlled Washington system that is going to just completely collapse the doctor-patient relationship and one that empowers patients, that respects the dignity of the individual, that gives them more choices of more affordable health insurance. Those in health coverage, those are the two choices. If people see in the 2020 elections that they have these two choices, they get to make a decision, and then there will be a mandate to come back and pass this legislation. Right now, Washington is gridlocked. It will be for the next year and a half. But, but the whole point of a presidential campaign and, and it, all federal campaigns, is to let the voters make a choice and a decision. And that's what we need to be offering them over the next 15 well, months. Well, let's educate them a little bit. The concepts that I think get fuzzy for people, I think you can clarify, are what are universal health care versus universal mm-hmm. health insurance, and how do they square with Catholic social teaching? Yeah, well, I... <laughs> I believe that most of my colleagues in the free market health policy world, we all want to see universal coverage. We want everybody to be able to have the health insurance and protection they need to make sure they get care, the care that they need, especially if it's beyond their financial means. And that's different for everybody. But we need to make sure that we, that we have a safety net as well so that people who can't afford to purchase health insurance have a good, strong safety net. What the, what the Medicare for All plans... Well, right now, I just want to get to these principles, do. Grace Marie. So what does the term universal health care mean? What does the term mm-hmm. universal health insurance mean? Well, I think they're conflated, but it basically... When you say universal coverage, we want everybody to be covered, right? But most people, when they hear that, they think that means a centrally controlled Washington system in which doctors are paid based upon what Washington thinks they should be, uh, their, the rates they should be paid, and hospitals are paid according to, to a global budget, rather than having a much more diverse competitive system. So, so there's a difference between universal coverage where everyone has health insurance and hopefully access to health care. And most of us share that as a goal, a good thing on both sides of the aisle. But the the Medicare for all plan with a single payer and a universal governmental system can lead to some challenges with Catholic social teaching, can it? Absolutely. And, And we've seen with examples like Little Charlie Guard, where the state decides, mm-hmm. not the parents, the fate of this little this little boy's life. I mean, it, there's you see so many examples where the state makes decisions, often based upon economic considerations mm-hmm. rather than the dignity of the and the respect for the family and but, the person. So universal health coverage does not necessarily mean single payer or government run, does it? No, no, but I think that's everybody. what is going on in the media, though, is that the only way to get universal health coverage is by government-controlled single-payer. And so that's something I want to do for our listeners is to explain these are two different things. There are other ways to get universal coverage. And other countries do that, don't they? Absolutely. And what well, other ways other- are there besides mm-hmm. single government-payer to do that? Well, most other countries have a much more central role for government even than we do in this country. And they, but, but even though they may have a government-run, a centrally government-run healthcare system, they often allow escape hatches for people to be able to buy private coverage for things that are not covered under the national health plan. In um, Australia, for example, most of the surgeries, the great majority of surgeries, are, are performed um, for by people who have private coverage. Many fewer are those who are on the government system. They're waiting in much longer lines. So people have escape hatches. The, the plan that 
that Senator Sanders has offered does not allow for private coverage for anything that the, the, the government plan would cover. And it's a very, very extensive. So, so that's much more um, draconian than just about any other country in the world. No other country would be that limited in how people could get their health care. As limited as the Medicare for All plan yes. that is on the table here in this country, that's correct. Okay. And in one of the things I read that you wrote, you quote uh, a physician at the, or a physician, um, a scholar at the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business, who says that the federal government already influences nearly 80% of healthcare spending, and yet the government thinks that by influencing 100%, things will be better. Isn't there a cognitive disconnect there? You know, that, that's when I have testified four times this year so far on, on healthcare issues, including Medicare for All, it's really astonishing to me because what they say is, the only reason that it doesn't work in this country to be able to get to universal care and coverage is because the government doesn't control it all. If the government just controlled it all, they could make this work. That's what they say, even though many of us argue that government control is the thing that is is what people are so dissatisfied with as we started this conversation. That's what they're frustrated with. They don't have power and control. They don't have options for the coverage that works for them and that they can afford. Now, has Medicare for All been clearly defined by candidate Senator Sanders and others? Oh, yes. He actually has legislation. And and I we had a uh, the hearing, uh, the first hearing on Medicare for All was on April 30th, to which I also testified before the House Rules Committee. Uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has legislation, and it's, it's perhaps even more extensive and aggressive than Senator Sanders. It would also cover long-term care for no, at no cost to anybody except the tax, taxpayer. So it's a so give and us the Bernie high Sanders, points. Give us the key yeah. details people should know about. Well, if they, they, all of the Medicare for All bills would, the, 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 the main ones, would eliminate all private coverage and all current programs. So 173 million people that have employer-based health insurance, that goes away. Wow. Medicare, as we be know, be nice for it, employers. <laughs> Healthcare costs well, a lot of money as a benefit, not, but if somebody's going to end up actually, paying for it on their taxes, and it's probably going to be the people who are working and paying taxes, not just the employers. Absolutely, and and employers. I mean, they would be required, I think, to pay some sort of a. They would be the the taxes that would be would be required to finance this would be really astronomical. Do, do they have any and estimates on economy that? Economy crushing. Well, there are additional $32 trillion, trillion with a T, in government spending over 10 years. And that's assuming that doctors and hospitals are paid at Medicare rates today. And so that would more than would double our national under. debt, right? Absolutely. Our, double our, our national spending. It's more than we... That we would be spending more on this new health care program than the federal government spends on its entire federal budget any year. Wow, that's kind of scary. Today. Very scary. And, and the government doesn't have the capacity to manage this. Wow. I want to read a quote to you from um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a, a Russian author. He wrote this in the mid-1950s in a book called Cancer War. And it's a discussion between a, a young uh, uppity physician and an older, supposedly wiser family physician. And the young physician says about Soviet health care, but it's our greatest achievement, the fact that health care is a free service. But the older physician says, is this really a great achievement? What does free mean? The doctors don't work for nothing, you know. It only means they're paid out of the national budget, which is supported by patients. It isn't free treatment, but it is depersonalized treatment. So how do Solzhenitsyn's comments reflect the current state of the healthcare debate here? Do you think he was onto something with those statements? Absolutely. And I have to tell you that one of my fears is that those who are promoting a Medicare for All plan believe that this is the way to get costs down. And how are they going to do that? They're going to pay physicians and hospitals at much, much less than today to the point that many of them 
as I said, will not even be able to keep their doors open. Most rural hospitals would go out of business within the first year. But even more than that, if it is, and Solzhenitsyn is right, the, the depersonalization that, that every physician and hospital, they have to answer to the government warlords. <laughs> in order to be able to get paid, not to the patient. And that's really the fundamental disconnect, yes. and that's what we really need to fix, and that needs to be the topic of next year's debate. I, I think that's one of the things that scares me the most, is anything that can be freely given can also be freely restricted or taken away. Absolutely. We want to talk about an alternative, the Catholic idea of health care, when we come back after our break on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we are here with Grace Marie today talking about Medicare for All and, you know, what's a Catholic to do about it. We, we'd like Grace Marie to kind of go through the 12 health care principles for Catholics that the CMA has put together. These are things that respect human dignity and kind of measure Medicare for All against these principles to see if it's something that, what parts of it are, are a good idea and if we can support any parts of it at all. So, Grace Marie, you're familiar with that that 12-point principled plan. Um, What kind of insights do you have to share with us on that? Well, we have been working closely with the Catholic Medical Association, and I've been a volunteer policy advisor to them for many years, and just so impressed with how forward-looking they are and how involved they are in the policy-making process. And I think it, it really has, has a big impact. A number of them um, are being invited to, to White House meetings to advise the administration as well. But they, they talk about the fundamental principles of medicine, but also of human dignity, that we have, we must respect the right to life. We must have doctors and patients at the center of the plan. We have to have patient and patient freedom to be able to have the health care and the health coverage choices that work for them. And that's going to be different depending upon where you live, which part of the country you live in, what your, um, and for people of faith that may be different than, than others have different, who have different priorities. But that's a fundamental tenet of freedom. We have to also have a preferential option, a preferential treatment for the poor to make sure there's a strong safety net, that it's not, that it's maintained to make sure that the most vulnerable are protected if they don't have the financial means to purchase. Well, let's start with those principles you've said. How does Medicare for All measure up in those areas, freedom and preferential treatment? It gives you no freedom because you're going to get one government benefit package Right now, they're promising everything, but as every other country has shown us, you see more and more restrictions on access to treatment, more and more waiting lines. Drugs are available here. The newest, most innovative drugs are not available in other countries, and it all gets down to the global budget. If Washington is paying, Washington's making the decision about what's covered, who you can see, and how much they're going to be paid. That's a very, very different system than one that is driven from the bottom up by doctors and patients really having the freedom to be able to make the decisions that work based for that particular person. The human dignity of that individual is respected in a private system. It cannot be in a centrally government, central government-controlled Medicare for All system. Grace Marie, one of the principles that you had mentioned um, is the the principle of the right to life. And another one on the list is religious liberty and freedom of conscience. How would uh, freedom of conscience and right to life be dealt with in Medicare for All? We've seen through the democratic debates, tragically, that they believe abortion on demand not only is a right, but must be covered by this Medicare for All program, and I worry that doctors and patients would lose their licenses if they are not willing to comply with the government mandates for, uh, for to perform procedures that, that violate their conscience. We've already seen it in Vermont. There's a big lawsuit going on with a nurse, a nurse who was lied to, told that a patient had had a miscarriage, 
and she, in fact, was having an elective abortion, and they got her in the room, and they told her if she did not continue to, to support this procedure, she was going to get fired. So we've already seen where this goes. The, the right of the individual and the right of the individual physician is is assumed the demands of the state. So we it would be effectively making abortion a state paid for right with everybody's taxes. Absolutely right. Okay. And our plan runs all of the money through the state children's health insurance program, our health care choices plan, which has built in hide protections so that there can be no taxpayer funding for abortions in our health care choices plan. And isn't that similar to uh, the Graham-Cassidy plan that didn't quite pass two years ago? Yes, in fact, Senator Graham is is our champion, and we are working with that plan as a platform. And but we've expanded it and made it much more. Uh, we think give people much more freedom, many more choices, even people on government programs like Medicare and Medicaid to be able to have a private option. Medicare now does, but not in Medicaid to let them take the value of that and buy a private plan of their choice. That's what you get back to this whole concept of the centrality of the doctor-patient relationship, individual dignity, human freedom, that's what we're working for. So, and so, that's what these principles are organized around. So you also mentioned preferential treatment for the poor and a safety net. How would Medicare for All address that? When you put everybody into the same program, you no longer have a safety net. Ah, that's the a good safety point. Net break, the safety net breaks when everybody is in the same one. And in fact, it's happening with Medicaid right now with so many states that have expanded access to Medicaid to able-bodied working-age adults, single adults, that um, it makes it more difficult for people on traditional Medicaid to get the care they need. If you throw everybody in the same plan, the most vulnerable at both ends of life are the ones most at risk. And how does that work? Why would that be the case? Because there's only so much money. If you've got a global budget, and it's very, very clear in Senator Sanders' plan that this, the, the, uh, there will be an annual budget, and the Secretary of Human Service, uh, Health and Human Services, his job is, or her job is to figure out how to allocate that money. And when when people are too expensive, it they it, at best they may say, well, we're just going to delay your treatment. And in some cases, and we've seen this actually in some. Uh, Norway, Sweden, that that there's involuntary euthanasia. I'm sorry to have to say that, but that's what happened. Well, and, and even, Grace Marie, on the other side of that, even apart from restricting care, um, providers will self-select out is one of the things that I've had to do, unfortunately, in my practice. They changed the way that Medicaid was reimbursing in the state of Indiana, and every time I saw a Medicaid patient, our practice lost $40. We were literally going out of business. And so when they changed the funding, because there's only so many dollars and they spread it among more people, they pay the physicians less, and then I can't afford to pay the people that work at the office. And so we had to stop seeing Medicaid, and now these really nice folks that we were able to care for previously, now they have to go and find a different doctor who's probably further away with longer wait lists. So there's there's real it. restrictions even even if the government doesn't put the restrictions on a lot of times the what little aspect of the market that is left will naturally put those on as well. Well, and I I think that that is really gets us to one of the other key issues. You want to provide the care to people who need it. But the government makes it so difficult that you can't. And frankly, the government sees the church as a competitor. A competitor. And the, and the central, the essential role for charity is really, really begins to be crowded out in these plans. They absolutely need, and I think that oftentimes the church doesn't understand that the politicians want, want patients to be loyal to them. And if the church is providing other options and the private physicians are providing charity care, they see that as a competitor and, and they want to shut it down. They want to all health care has to be brought into government control. As I said from these hearings, it was clear they want to control it all. 
That's the only way they think they're going to get costs down, and they don't want any escape hatches. But what evidence do they have that government controlling all health care would bring costs down? I mean, what other countries have demonstrated that? Well, other countries do have lower overall and, and aggregate and, and per capita health care costs than the United States does. We're an outlier. But we also are the country that's developing all the new drugs. By far, many more of them in the United States. So we absorb many of those research costs, not just for new drugs, but for new technologies. People have much faster access to doctors and hospitals and surgeries here than they do elsewhere. So yes, you could spend less, but you're going to have fewer doctors, fewer surgeries in Canada. If, if a province runs out of money, they just close the hospital in November or December. If you have a, a surgery scheduled for December 10th, forget it. You've got to get back in line again. So, yes, you can save money, and they do, but at the expense of the kind of quality and, and faster access to care that we so value in this country. There's two Catholic social principles that kind of go together solidarity and subsidiarity. Mm. How, how do those fit in with Medicare for All? You know, I, I think that subsidiarity is, is so important and really often lost in the health policy conversations that the best decisions are made closest to the person, the family, the community, the town, the city, not some distant bureaucracy in Washington. So our plan moves power and control to the individual. Medicare for all moves it up all to Washington. And solidarity is also the sense that you were just talking about, that you want to take care of your patients. You would like to take care of Medicaid patients, but you can't do it and keep your doors open. So the sense that we can work together as a community that values the role of charity, that values the role of the private sector, that values the role of a, sa a social safety net for those who don't have any other place to go to, to get their care covered, all of that needs to work together. That's the solidarity. But that's also lost when you have one government single payer that's making all the decisions from Washington about what care is available, what care is offered, how much doctors are going to be paid, what hospitals get to stay open or not. I've also heard it said that uh, if you have one payer, you only have one ethic of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. In and they will decide what that is. They will decide what the ethics are, and they probably will not be ethics that we agree with. So, and, and, that's, and out the window goes the freedom of conscience, because that will be irrelevant to the political promise of the benefits that would be, that would be available. Right now, in America, most health care is employee-sponsored, employer-sponsored. Mm -hmm. what, what do you see as the advantages or disadvantages of that? My colleague, Doug Badger, wrote a really fabulous paper on the employer-based system that uh, people can find on our website at galen.org. I'd also be happy to send it to them. But the, I believe the employer-based system has actually saved the United States from moving toward the kind of centralized government-run system, healthcare system that we have seen virtually all other developed economies uh, create, that employers value the ability to provide a benefit to their workers that's very tax-preferred as a way of attracting and keeping good workers. They also have an ability to educate their workforces and do wellness programs. They negotiate on their behalf for, for, for benefits, trying in many cases to give them a choice of different plans, from HMOs to, H, uh, to PPOs to health savings accounts and health reimbursement arrangements. But many people still feel they want more choices than that. But I still think that the employer-based health system with 173 million employees, dependents, and retirees is, is a central pillar for our, our health care system and we would say our economy. And the employer-based system, importantly, actually helps to cross-subsidize the underpayments 
from Medicare and Medicaid yes. to physicians and hospitals. Yes. And without them, it would be hard to keep their doors open. The private payment is really important. Grace Mary, right now in Congress, there are some health care bills, but they're just little bits and pieces trying to eat away at some of the problems. Do you think that these are capable of accomplishing anything substantial? Not, I, I really do not have a lot of hope for this Congress. It will do. They're, they're working very hard to do some specific things to deal right. with the problem of surprise billing, right. of, as you say, of pres- high prescription drug costs, of um, vaccines. There, there are a lot of very, very specific bills, but we really need to get at this financing issue because that's really where the power is. And it's going to either be in Washington in a Medicare for All plan or devolve to the individual and the family and the community for our health care choices plan. So in our last 90 seconds, what can you recommend that our listeners do if they want to learn more, become involved, or do something about this? Well, first we do a weekly newsletter. If people would like to go to the Galen, to galen.org, G-A-L-E-N.org, They can sign up for our newsletter. We also have a website that has a lot of information about what we've been talking about here today. Get informed, get engaged, and I think the most important thing, don't give up. Don't believe that the single-payer advocates are going to win simply because they're loudest and because they're making the most appealing promises. This This is a dark path forward if they win. We must have the bright path forward that puts doctors and patients back in control of decisions, devolves power back to the individual through the concept of of subsidiarity that relies on the essential role of charity that protects freedom and conscience, that values the right and the, the dignity of the human individual, and that protects future generations from being overwhelmed by debt for the cost of this, what certainly will be a failed government-run health care system. Grace Marie Turner. Galen.org. Galen.org. Grace Marie is the founder, the president. Thank you for being here with Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with our wrap-up after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question that we've all been waiting for, Tom. Yes. List of 10 countries, Australia, Austria, Canada, France, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. How many of those countries have citizens who pay less percentage of their annual income toward health insurance than Americans. And this is based off of information on the World Health Organization website. It's on a conservative website, it's not a liberal website. And these are these are countries with universal These are healthcare. all countries with universal health care that we in the United States do not have now. So how many did you guess? Did you guess since they have universal health care that they all paid less than the United States? That that was kind of my thought. That's the whole point, right? Is to cut down on costs. To cut down on cost. And yet, as a percent of income, only one of these countries pay have citizens who pay less per year. And that's in France, where the average Frenchman or woman pays 10% of their income per year toward health insurance. The U.S., 11%, tying with the Netherlands. Germany at 12%, Japan at 13 Then you have three countries at 15%, with Canada to our north, Sweden and the U.K., 16% in Belgium, 19% in Australia and Austria, and finally, the poor Swiss. 30% of their income goes toward health care. That's a lot of money. So this, this shocked me. I had no idea. But this is on World Health Organization website showing that universal health care does not necessarily reduce the out-of-pocket percent cost based on your annual income. Well, and it... So there's that. So, you know, what do you think your, your, your takeaways are? Is, is Medicare for All uh, really something that demonstrates the high cost of free care? Well, I, I like what Grace Marie had to say going through the, the 12 principles from the CMA. And especially, you know, with uh, tax subsidies for abortion and then kind of flying in the face of subsidiarity, 
I I don't know that as a Catholic I could support this. I mean, it would it would seem like a lot of these things go against what I believe. You know, something that she said we can all support, and I think you said we can all support, is we want everybody to have health care coverage. And that's the underlying goal. So I think everybody can agree that's a good goal to get everybody and the health care they need. too. We want people to be able to get health care, you know, and the, it seems like the devil's in the details of how to do it, but I'd be afraid if if I wasn't able to practice as a Catholic physician, if I was forced or coerced to, to participate in abortions like people are being. Right. It, so, you know. you know, from going through this with Grace Marie, it, it doesn't seem that the way that Medicare for All is put together is something that you could support or that somebody could support from Catholic principles. So if you're trying to, if someone's trying to follow Catholic principles, I'm hard pressed to see how that fits into here. Uh, but please, you can go to the galen.org website to learn more. Uh, educate yourself so that when you vote, you know, vote what truly respects and reflects human dignity. You know, we thank all of our listeners who are with us, who, who listen to us on podcasts and are with us each week. And this week for this episode of Dr. Doctor, we are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We're brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen to past episodes on iTunes or Google Play Podcasts. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing sleep with Dr. John Traveling. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.